So every human being has been uniquely created by God. Every single one of us and all of our diversity. So if you're atheist, Christian, agnostic, black, white, African, Asian, tall, short, thick, or thin, you still have been created in the image of God and you are unique and no one is like you. No one. Take, for example, identical twins. We're like, okay, surely they're the same. Well, no. Science would tell us that though identical twins look the same, they have different fingerprints, and they don't share 100% the same genetic makeup. Why? You're unique. But yet, despite our uniqueness, humanity is such that we all share a lot of stuff in common. Like, even if you raise in a different household, different culture, you still got stuff in common with people you've never met before. I'm going to prove that to you, actually, with a picture on this screen. Let me show you how connected we are. So the picture to the top left. Now, if you like me, we grew up playing Uno. One of the most disrespectful things you can do at the end of the game <laughs> is place to draw four. I remember my brother doing this, and I'm like, yo, do you really love me? How could you love me and do such a thing? Y'all with me? Or take the picture to the top right, for example. And if you're a millennial, growing up, I have no idea why did we think this $2 bill was worth 10 times more than what it actually was. <laughs> it felt like you was rich when you got a $2 bill. Or take the picture to the bottom left. Amen. I don't know why my... <laughs> the bottom left. Now, always at my grandma's house, she always had these, and there was never the cookies in there. I don't know why there was needle and threads, it was a junk drawer, but I don't even know what those cookies taste like. <laughs> Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Now, younger generation, I got y'all, I'm not gonna leave y'all out, this is for the Gen Zers, because right now old people have no idea what that final image is. <laughs> but the young folk do, so y'all control them all day and then finally tell them later on at the end of the day. So why do I bring this up? There are so many commonalities shared amongst humanity. The book of Ecclesiastes is meant to be wisdom for all people to learn from because it touches on realities that we all share. This brings up the reality that we'll look at today in our text. We'll see the very fact that we all experience the presence of evil under the sun. All humanity has been affected by and partaken in the sinful nature that has corrupted all we know is life under the sun. Therefore, in our time today, we're going to look at the next few chapters of Ecclesiastes, and we'll see three things. First, we're going to look at the reality of evil under the sun. Second, we're going to see the reason for evil under the sun. And then finally, thirdly, we'll look at the remedy for evil under the sun. So with that, let's look at first the reality. Let's pick back up at verse 1 in Ecclesiastes 4. We'll read it again. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1, it says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Sin has affected every sphere of life under the sun. Solomon begins this chapter by showing us just how broken the world is that we live in. Now, keep in mind, Solomon wrote this thousands of years before us, but despite the change of time and culture, we'll see that evil has only morphed 
into different versions of the same thing. Remember, even with evil, nothing is new under the sun. So much so that Solomon says in verse 2 and 3 that life can be so ugly that it almost feels better to die than to live under these conditions in the evil world. Actually, he'll take it one step further and say that it almost feels better to have never been born than to enter into a world filled with tears and sorrow. Okay, let's pause for a second. Like, Solomon, you're definitely killing the mood. Like, we come to church, like, if y'all, like, we come to church for encouragement. You had a long work week. You probably tired. You come to church, hoping to hear a good message. And, and Solomon's like, yo, life sucks. It's better off being dead than living. Now, I'm like, Solomon, like, why would you do that? Now, I'm going to throw my wife under the bus. I love my wife. But my wife is a little bit like Solomon. She likes to think in reality. Now, what do I mean by this? So my wife has this thing that she says, just say, hey, babe, I want to watch a movie, but I want to cry. And I'm like, what? Why would you want to do that? She's like, I just want something real, watch something that's real. And I'm like, no, I don't watch movies for reality. I watch them for fantasy. I want to escape the world that we live in. And Solomon's saying the same thing. Why does he do that? Solomon's like, I'm not doing this to make you hate your life. And I'm not doing it to encourage people to desire death over living. It's actually the opposite. Solomon is hoping that by us having an honest conversation about the real world we live in under the sun, it will then push you to living your life as a person who lives for eternity, which is beyond the sun. Solomon wants to give you truth, reality. So what is the reality of evil under the sun, or what does it look like? First, oppression and injustice. We see this in verse 1 and also in chapter 5, verse 8. Solomon looks around and he sees the most vulnerable people of society being taken advantage of and obliterated by those with power. This is one of the reasons Solomon says it feels better to have never been born than to live in such conditions. Now remember, this is also why God rebuked Israel in the Old Testament. We just got out of the study of Isaiah. Isaiah 10, 1 and 2 says it this way. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Oppression and injustice are as common as the flu or the cold. Wherever there is sinful people, you can bet that there will be injustice. And not only that, wherever there's injustice, you can also bet that there will be the tears of the oppressed. Now, one of the mistakes that we make in America is that we assume because America has been prosperous and wealthy, that maybe we're morally better than other places. You know, maybe God has blessed us because of our moral conduct, so we're not like the other nations. Beloved, but that's not true. Here's the problem with that theory. Just like the oppression in Israel, it's also been present here. Take, for example, the words of the former slave Frederick Douglass. This is how he accounts his experience in the 1800s as a slave. In thinking of America, I sometimes find myself admiring her bright blue sky, her grand old woods, her fertile fields, her beautiful rivers, her mighty lakes, the star-crowned mountains. But my rapture is soon checked. My joy is soon turned to mourning. When I remember that all is cursed with the infernal actions of slaveholding, robbery, wrong. When I remember that with the waters of her noblest rivers, the tears of my brethren are borne to the ocean, disregarded and forgotten, and that her most fertile fields drink daily the warm blood of my outraged sisters. I am filled with unutterable loathing. 
So why does he say this? Because just like the wicked oppression that was present in the biblical times, it's also been present here in the land of the free. But lest you think that this is only an American problem, let me remind you that oppression has permeated throughout the entire world. The caste system in India, the religious oppression in the Middle East, the slaughter of Jews in Nazi Germany, the tribal wars in Africa, the murders of babies in the womb, the patriarchal oppression of women over the last several centuries. Beloved, the list goes on. It's the reality. Why? Oppression, like everything else, is not new under the sun. It will be present wherever there are sinful men and women. And not only that, evil is going to be present under the sun. And that's Solomon's point. So what are some other evils that Solomon brings to our attention? Well, second, he talks about our work. Look at verse 4. He says, Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Okay, so not only does evil exist in the bad things, but even they are present in the things that were meant to be good, like work. Solomon's basically like, look, when you see people working hard and breaking their backs at their job, it actually comes from them wanting to outdo their neighbor, which is defined as envy. Like achieving wealth and status is less about you and more about how people view you in light of your achievements. Now, we know this to be true on so many levels, right? Let me use myself as an example. So usually when my family and friends hang out, we'll have a get-together, have a real good time. And before we leave, we say we want to capture the moment. So let's take a picture, guys. And this is typically how it goes down. Like we're hanging out, and somebody will say, well, I'll take the picture. And I'll ask. I'll say, okay, what kind of iPhone you got? They said, I got the 11. I said, the 11? They still make those? <laughs> and then somebody will say, well, I got the 12. And I'm like, the 12? The camera's trash on there. I said, guys. I got the iPhone 13 Pro Max. Let me take the picture. Let's use my phone. Now, here's the reality. Why do I do that? Because when I buy my phone, I'm like, I want to have the newest phone. I don't want to ever be in a place where somebody got the newest iPhone and they're like, yo, have you seen this feature? And I'm like, no, I haven't. I don't want that to happen. (laughs) Now, sometimes in our gatherings, there will be one person who's like, well, hey, I got an Android. That person should be locked up. Sorry, Android users, love (laughs) y'all. Now, maybe iPhones and phones is not your thing, but maybe it's cars. You got a 2016, 17 nice car that you worked hard for and you bought it and you love your car until you get to a stoplight and somebody pulls up with a new version. And you're like, why am I driving this 1970 Pacer? I need the new one. I should not be living like this. Why do I bring this up? It's the reality. There are really good things in life, but good things become evil because of envy. Like, for example, it's really good to eat healthy and get in shape and glorify God with your body. But how soon does that turn evil when working out isn't for your health, but it's because you want the best six-pack. You want to be thick and thin in the right places to be comparative to the next person around you. You turn it evil. Or it's a good thing to own a home and have shelter over your heads for you and your family. That's a good thing. But what happens when your home is only meant to be a bragging point to others in your community? It's less about you having a place over your head, but more about, hey, like, we got the nicest home on the block. Like, have you seen ours compared to some of the other houses? Like, like, our grass is way greener than theirs. And Christmas time, oh, we got all the bright lights. Like, this is our house. Matter of fact, I'll tell you my address so you can get an idea of where I live and how much money I'm making. It turns around. It's reality. 
It's a good thing to work hard and not be lazy. But when work is only a tool to build up a kingdom of selfish ambitions, I guarantee you it would only become a dead end of disappointments. Or as Solomon says, it, it's vanity, a chasing after the wind. I don't know if there's anybody in here that's ever caught up with the wind. I don't think you can. Why does he say that? Because it's vanity. It's meaningless. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never catch it. But that's another example that Solomon brings up. So what's another example of evil under the sun that Solomon wants to point our attention to? Next up is our relationships. If you look again at verses 7 through 12, Solomon describes a person who is isolated and disconnected from others because of their toil. So why does he connect relationships to an evil person who pursues selfish ambitions? Well, it's obvious. When we make our life goals about my happiness, my pleasure, my victory, my comfort, my, 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 where does that leave us but alone and by ourselves? Solomon's like, look, reality tells you it's better to be with someone than to be by yourself. If you fall, don't you want somebody to help lift you up? Or if you're cold, can't you be warmer when somebody's next to you? Or if you're being attacked, don't you got a better chance of defending yourself if somebody's helping you? You can see it in nature. Let me be transparent a sec on my own life. So like a lot of times when people think of pastors and leaders in the church, they think we're like superheroes. Like I love the pastors at College Park Church, but I promise you we just as messed up as the rest of y'all. It is the reality. But we think higher than pastors than we actually should. Beloved, I promise you, outside of the Holy Spirit indwelling in me and the community of people and the relationships in my life, I will be a mess. Like, I have no idea where I would be if I didn't have my homies, my team that check up on me daily and weekly. Like, y'all would probably see me on the news, another pastor with a moral failing. Or take away just that example. Like, if I found out a week from now that I got cancer and I got three months to live, you know what I can guarantee you? It's going to be hard, but I know I got my team with me. At my deathbed, I got people who love me and are connected to me. That's Solomon's point. Don't allow evil to even influence the way you have relationships with others. It's the reality. Solomon wants us to know that evil under the sun is a real reality, and we're all affected by it. But in order to live well, despite the evil under the sun, we must properly understand the reason why it's here in the first place, which leads us to our second and our next point, the reason for evil under the sun. So we spent the first part of this section of Ecclesiastes looking at some clear examples of evil in the world. Now, there's endless other examples we can use, but now Solomon wants you to ask the question, why? What is the reason for the evil under the sun? Solomon is actually going to answer this question by taking your attention and directing it to the house of God. Jump over to chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes with me. We're going to look at the first three verses. Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing is evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. 
Now, the natural assumption you might make as we've been talking about the evil in the world is to say, okay, that makes sense out there, but that don't exist with God's people. That's the world. Like, that's their problem. And Solomon's like, wrong. Solomon shows that even religious people, those who profess faith in God, find themselves affected by evil. So why is that? Why is that the reality? Well, we must remember the origin of evil under the sun. This takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, in order for a place to be considered God's house, God's presence must dwell there. And this is the Garden of Eden. God dwelled with Adam and Eve under the sun. He created it and he dwelled with them and he said it was good. But what happens? Something happens in chapter 3. The serpent comes, and remember, God had told Adam and Eve, you can enjoy all the fruit in the garden and all the beauty of being in my presence and being my people in my household, but do not disobey and eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And listening to Satan, they disobey, and what happens? God said, if you eat, you will surely die. Death entered into the world. Sin entered into God's good creation. And therefore, everything that is evil and bad is a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. This is the reality. The same evil that's present here in Ecclesiastes stems back to the garden. Remember, nothing is new under the sun. Adam and Eve failed to guard their steps in the garden, and instead they listened to the words of the serpent, which was evil. Beloved, I hope this wakes some of you up this morning. Like, I hope this grabs some of your attention. Verse 2 and 3 shows that the evil can overtake even those who profess faith in Christ. Because simply using eloquent prayers and lofty words about God doesn't equate to having a healthy relationship with him. It's not the same thing. It's possible to say that all the right things, use religious jargon and all these $20 words about Jesus and all that, and yet at the same time, you're not being in a right relationship with him. This is what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for in Matthew 15. He said to them, he said, you hypocrites, didn't Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me, and in vain do they worship me? Beloved, don't for a second assume that the Pharisees or hypocrisy is only something that could happen in the biblical times, and this could never be you. So I remember when I first got saved, everything started to change with my perception of reality. I seen things in a new light. Like prior to knowing Jesus, the people I looked up to were like entertainers and athletes, people in like sports industry. That's the people I looked up to. But when I got saved, Christian pastors became the people I looked up to. Like these are the people I love listening to. I would go to conferences to meet them. And there was one guy in particular that literally changed everything in my life. I mean, I would listen to this guy's sermons all the time. I probably listened to over 50 or 60 of his messages. And not only that, I would share it with others. I would debate people like, I'm going to tell you now, you think John Piper the best preacher. No, this dude right here, he's the best preacher. Charles Spurgeon, who? They don't got nothing on him. The way he exposits the word and he's gospel-centered and he's captivating. Even now, as I'm preaching before you, I know he's influenced the way that I preach. But I remember one day, sitting at home, scrolling through social media, hits it. Pastor, disqualified from ministry, commits adultery, manipulated woman in his church, sat down, scandal. And I'm like, nah. Like, no, not him. Like, no, that's only false teachers, people that don't preach the truth that that happened to. Like, not him. And it rocked me. Like, what was I to do? I, had sh I met this guy in person. 
Like I went to a conference, I had a conversation with him. I'm like, no, this can't be the right thing that's happening to him. Maybe somebody else, but not him. So what's the reason for this? How does this happen to someone who knows the truth? Well, verse 7 answers it by saying it this way. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The reason for religious people and non-religious people alike rebelling against God is because at the heart of our rebellion is a lack of fear for the creator. Now, this fear that Solomon's referring to, it's not, hey, I'm scared of God because he's like this big person on the anthill with the magnifying glass. That's not what it's talking about. This fear is a reverence or a respect for the creator and sustainer of all life. Brothers and sisters, a real reverence for God means that we will remind our hearts who he is and also tell ourselves who we are so we would never think of ourselves more higher than we ought to. Real reverence for God means that we have a proper understanding of who he is as the creator and we never glorify ourselves or the creation. This is the reason for evil under the sun. Where there is no fear of God, no reverence for him, you can be sure that evil will rule hearts. Which leads us to our final point. We must ask, what is the remedy? So what's the remedy? Third, the remedy for evil under the sun. So we see the reality of evil under the sun. We know the reason for it, but now we're left to ask Solomon, how do we solve or how is this problem solved? Beloved, jump over to chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes. Now look at verses 10 through 12. It says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon suggests that the remedy to the evil under the sun can only be found in him who is beyond the sun. The solution to the evil in this world can only come from one who is unaffected by the evil, and also transcends this evil world. So who is that? Verse 10 makes it clear. Whatever happened has already came to be. It's been named by God. God is the one who created all things. This means that whatever happens only takes place inside of the sovereign creator's will. If you want proof of this, that God is sovereign, even with evil existing, no better picture of this than Acts 2, the words of the apostle Peter. This is what Peter says as the evil in this world collides with the sovereign plan of God. This is Acts 2, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by your hands, by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Beloved, the evil of this world is not more powerful than the God that created all things. This is the heart of God's remedy for the evil under the sun. It's the gospel. 
That's what Jesus does. Adam and Eve broke God's law and brought death into creation. All humanity was affected by Adam's decision. And then what happens? God says, I'm going to send my son, my son who's not affected by evil. He will be sinless. Sinless son of God came into the flesh in humanity, not only to destroy evil, but pay for the sins or the evil of his people. Beloved, that's what happened on the cross. The evil that us, that we've done by breaking God's law, it had to be punished. Jesus stands on the cross as he's dying. He says, it is finished. The penalty that we deserve was placed on him. But not only that, he resurrected. And when he resurrected, everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him, they will be resurrected for for eternity and live in his presence. That means evil won't win. We look forward to an eternity when evil won't be the reality we live in, but it will be judged by God. And as God says, the final enemy, death, will be no more. Be no more tears, no more pain. It's the reality. But God doesn't only solve the problem of evil by Jesus eternally saving us for our sins. Like that is important and that is true in the fullest of sense. Beloved, but Jesus didn't save you from your sin for you to go to heaven one day and stop right there. What Jesus done for us eternally was meant to ask, you know what, but this is how it applies to you now. What he done for our future should affect the way we live in the present. So with that, what do we do while we're here? I wanna give you four practical takeaways in light of God's remedy for evil. So what do we do now? Or as Solomon says, that God knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. So what is good for us for the few days we're here? First, do kingdom justice. Do kingdom justice. As a believer who belongs to a kingdom beyond the sun, we must do justice like the kingdom we represent. Remember what Jesus prayed. He prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. We're meant to be an extension of the righteous kingdom of God and not an extension of oppression. So do kingdom justice. Now, this is where Christians get real weird. He's like, okay, but what do I do as if Google don't exist? (laughs) Beloved, there's evil all around us, even in our own city. Do a quick Google search and find different ways that you can plug in and be the hands and feet of Jesus to love on people, to engage with people. Like you don't need to have a degree from seminary in order to know how to help and love people. Matter of fact, right down the street, there's a nursing home. And I can almost guarantee you that in that nursing home, there's probably people in there whose family rarely ever visits them. You can go and engage them and share the love of Christ. Beloved, this is what doing justice and loving on people is. Finding out where there's needs, where people are poor, where people are marginalized, people are hurting, and saying, you know what, I just want to be here for you. I'm going to listen and hear your story and help you. I maybe want to take my time and efforts and do justice. This is one of the takeaways I want you to leave with. Do kingdom justice. Second thing I want you to take away with. Don't overemphasize your sin and also don't underestimate your sin. We naturally do one of these two, and I would encourage you to do neither of them. First, if you're hearing this message today about the evil under the sun, and you think about how much you fail and how broken you are, how sinful you are, let me encourage you with this. Beloved, don't overemphasize your sin, because when God looks at you, he's not looking at you as this sinful person who he wants nothing to do with. 
God doesn't see you that way. Maybe you grew up in a household where all you were told is how much you failed, how you weren't good enough, how you were compared to so-and-so and how you failed. Beloved, that's not how God looks at you. Or maybe you grew up in a society or in a system or place where you're like, you know what? You're probably not going to be this good. You don't got this on the IQ chamber. You can't amount to this. And you have this such critical view of yourself. Beloved, that's not how God looks at you. When God looks at you, he sees his son. And when he sees his son, he said, that is my child as well. Because Jesus died in our place and made us right with God. When he sees you, he sees a son or a daughter. Let this encourage you, beloved. Never overlook your sin. God doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint, someone that he loves. But on the opposite end, maybe your problem is the other way. You hear messages like this and you hear things like this and you're like, yeah, man, I can only think about how this should apply to people over there. You know, I, I mean, I struggle with sin, but not really like that. Like, I don't really struggle with sin like that. One of the most obvious ways that I can see the lack of maturity in a Christian is the way they view their own sin. Yes, we've been made new. God has given us a new heart with new desires. But Paul also says the good I don't or the good I want to do, I don't do. And the bad I don't want to do, I end up doing. Why? We still have flesh. Don't think it can never be you. We have a sinful nature. Now, there's two reasons why somebody would have this view of themselves to not see just how sinful they are or can be. One, they don't really know Christ. They don't really understand the gospel. Second, They're so closed off from community, so isolated from other people that nobody's ever able to speak into their lives and call them to repentance. They'll keep an arm's length away from people so nobody can tell them, hey, brother, sister, I see you doing this and you might want to be challenged here and grow here. They have a self-egotistical view of themselves and they want nobody to come inside that bubble because if it does, it will show that they're not as perfect as they want to be. Beloved, let that not be your life. Don't overemphasize your sin, but also don't underestimate your sin. Third thing I want you to leave with, enjoy the good gifts of God. Say it one more time. Enjoy the good gifts of God. In chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, Solomon says that if we put good things in their proper place, God will allow us to actually enjoy them. Enjoy the good gifts of God. Let me take money, for example. Money's not bad. Now, the love of money and greed, that is bad. But, beloved, if you have money, love on the poor. Love on the people around you. Not only loving on the poor, like spend good times with your family. Go on vacation. I remember talking to somebody a few weeks ago, and they were like, yeah, I kind of feel kind of bad. You know, my family went on this really nice vacation. I'm like, why do you feel bad? God intended for you to take the things that you have and do it to love on your family. Go on vacations and enjoy it. It's not a burden It should be a gift if you're using it in its proper context. Use your money for the glory of God. Enjoy his gift. But not only that, intimacy is another example of a good gift. Beloved, if you're married, you have a husband or wife, enjoy the gift of intimacy with your spouse. Love on your spouse. Go on date nights. I know my wife's in here like, amen. Enjoy good intimacy with your spouse. Go have a good time. Go out and talk to each other. Act like y'all dating again. Do all that. Enjoy time with your children. Like, put your phone down. I'm preaching to myself. Like, put your phone down. Don't be so busy with work and all these things that you don't see these little kids growing up so fast right before your eyes. Enjoy them. The beauty of intimacy with your family. Now, this is where we also get a little weird. Why do we act like only married people and parents can have intimacy? Beloved, if you're single, 
Enjoy the intimacy as well. So how should you as a single person enjoy intimacy? It's the community of faith, other believers, friendships. God intended if you're single to have intimacy with your friends as well. This is why Proverbs talks about having a friend is one of the most important things you can do because they're with you, they encourage you, they challenge you. Enjoy the intimacy of friendships. Don't be disconnected from people. Intimacy is a gift. What about the gift of work or the gift of your social status? Like these things are not bad. Like they were meant to be a good gift. The toil of your work wasn't meant to be something that brings you regret, but enjoyment. So if you're doing good work to the glory of God, don't be ashamed of that. Use it to the glory of God. Or if you've got social status, if you've got a million followers on social media, like that's not something that you need to feel bad for. But the question is, do you do it for your glory or do you do it for his? If you have it, use it for his kingdom. Use it to love on people. Use it to be a light to people. Use it to encourage people. If you got a job where you're famous and people look up to you, that's not a bad thing. But are you using it for yourself or using it for him? Because if you use it for him, enjoy it. It is a gift. Final takeaway I want to live is for those who may not know Christ. Do not cling to life under the sun. If you don't know who Christ is, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in him, I want to tell you, please don't cling to life under the sun. Here's the reality. Life is short. And I've said this before, and you've probably heard this before. Beloved, we live in an evil world. You can walk out of these doors right now, and your life ends like that. So if you don't know Jesus, like, we live in a crazy place. Tomorrow's not promised. Why would you gamble 60, 70, 80 years that will affect your entire eternity. Beloved, don't cling to life under the sun. There is a God who transcends the sun. He created the sun and everything around us. And he tells you that if you want to know life and enjoy it to the fullest, that comes and starts by knowing who he is and knowing who his son is. Because when you know life with the creator, you know how life was intended to be. You'll always be chasing the wind. There'll never be enough fun or enough things that'll fill that empty void in your heart. And yet God is saying, cling to me. I created you. I know what you need and long for. Don't cling to life under the sun. Let me bring this all together. Solomon wants to show us the reality, the reason, and the remedy for evil under the sun. The hope is that in us seeing this, we would then trust and the God that created the sun and everything underneath it. Chapter 6 ends by saying this, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And us as believers, we know it's God who holds eternity in his hands, and he calls us to come to him and enjoy the things that he gives us when we take it and put it in its proper context. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we've been challenged even so far in this book of Ecclesiastes, seeing the world as you meant it to be, but also in reality of what it is, I ask that you would take your word and that you would take this word and put it in the hearts of your people to know how they should apply it to their lives. That it will change the way that they work the next seven days, change the way they engage with their family, change the way they engage with their community. And we would see, as only Christ can do, the fruit of the Spirit. God, so I pray that you would do as you promised to do and not let your word come back void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.